0: This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now let's make healthcare human again.
1: Welcome to this episode of The Human Side of Healthcare. I'm Steve Love, and we're looking forward to our show today and in our very first segment. We're going to talk about something that is very, very important to hospitals especially. Many of our listeners may or may not realize this, but we truly are the human side of healthcare in that workforce. And the people that serve you when you come to our facilities are a large portion of how we deliver good quality health care here in North Texas. And I couldn't think of a better person to talk to than my board chair, John Phillips. Now, John's uh, full-time job is he's president of Methodist Dallas Medical Center, but he also serves as the board chair of the DFW Hospital Council. John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be
2: here, and it's an honor to uh, chair the DFW Hospital Council Board and a great honor to serve in healthcare in Dallas Fort Worth. We have such an amazing Metroplex and such incredible healthcare here. So thanks for having me
1: today. Yeah, and you, you just jogged a thought in that answer you gave. You know, the people in healthcare, based on your career and what you've done in healthcare, and whether it's on the business side or the clinical side, what do you perceive in the people that enter healthcare is their true mission? Sure.
2: Timely question. This morning at Methodist Dallas, we had our new employee orientation, and we have new employee orientation every two weeks. And I love to be the first person that meets with our new employees because it's so important, I believe, in any organization, whether it's healthcare or not. But since healthcare is what I do and what I'm passionate about, I, I feel healthcare is special. Um, especially when that patient, you know, we're caring for patients. I hope our patients here that we know that they are precious and they're our number one priority always. It doesn't matter if that's in a hospital, a doctor's office, you name it, patients are precious. And so it's very important that we have the best team members, the best staff, some people may call them best employees to take care of patients and our best doctors as well. Doctors are so, so vitally important, of course, to what we do in, in healthcare and hospitals. So, um, you know, meeting with our, our new staff this morning in orientation, we just talk about their why, you know, why do people choose healthcare and why do they get into it? And everyone's story is a little bit different, but I love to talk to our new staff about that because they always talk about, they love serving other people. And I think that's what it comes down to Steve is. Um, seemingly people in healthcare, the most successful people in healthcare, love taking care of other people.
1: You know, you're so right. I remember back when I first started in healthcare many, many years ago, I was in the cafeteria and I went over and sat with two oncology pediatric nurses and I spent about 30 minutes with them and their dedication, their mission, really their compassion, really had a big influence on me knowing I was in the right career at the right time. You know, John, we have a lot of listeners out there, and many may be young people that are considering, should I make healthcare a career? You know and I know healthcare is not just hospitals. Healthcare is a wide range of opportunities. But if you were advising the people that are listening That are considering healthcare as a career, what advice would you give? Sure. You know, um, even so, so I'd like to take even one
2: step back quickly, if I could, and um, to any of our listeners that we are fortunate enough for them to be listening to us today, even if you're not considering healthcare, I'd suggest you think about it, right? Just uh, keep an open mind because my story is, and college. Uh, I played football at a small college, uh, Abilene Christian University. I dearly love that school. And um, on my way from my apartment to the school, I would drive by a hospital in in Abilene, Texas every day. And I remember looking at it as it a 19 to 22-year-old saying, man, I would never want to work in a hospital, right? That's That's hard work. There's people that are sick, and that's scary work. And here I am many years later, and I love it right? So keep an open mind because you never know. And my experience is I I finished, um, you know, I thought I was going to be an English teacher. I come from a family of teachers and I thought that's what I would do. And, and through various twists and turns, I ended up at UT Southwestern, went to physical therapy school. Um, I still then decided that I was going to be an outpatient sports medicine, physical therapist, you know, probably uh, the, the physical therapist for the Dallas Cowboys for all I knew. And I had a clinical rotation um, at a uh, Dallas-Fort Worth inpatient rehab hospital, and I was so afraid going into that clinical rotation during school because I was going to be working with patients who had suffered a head injury, a stroke, or a spinal cord injury. I thought it was going to be not only a little bit scary, um, but that I wouldn't like it. And that experience led me down a path of wanting to work in hospitals for the rest of my career. So I guess advice number one is keep an open mind, right? Advice number two, if you're considering healthcare already, um, just know that not many patients get up in the morning and circle the day on their calendar and say, I'm so excited about going to the hospital. Most of the time, Patients end up in the hospital by chance, right? And especially a hospital like ours at Methodist Dallas, that is a Level One Trauma Center. Uh, we have the honor and the privilege of interacting with patients sometimes on their worst day, and family members as well on their worst day. So um, healthcare is an honor; it's um, just a a high, high calling. And um, my advice to to people considering it is: if you have a servant heart you will be fulfilled. You will probably many days feel like that you're benefiting more from the service that you're doing than patients and families are benefiting. And that's when you know that you have found your place.
1: You know, that is a great answer and certainly good advice to our listeners. I think we're down to about a minute, but I do want to ask you this healthcare is changing. Uh, There are a lot of changes. I saw a poll the other day where millennials want to do things on, the app. They want to go to a clinic. They don't want to go sit in a doctor's office, et cetera, et cetera. How will that influence the workforce? Sure. Um,
2: and I think um, that's great, actually. I'm so encouraged by the um, newer generations and how they're um, pushing us in healthcare to change, to be more patient-centric. And I do believe more and more, is, and we're seeing this today, more and more healthcare is being delivered at home. Um, hospitals are taking care of the sickest of the sick patients. And I think this is all a very good trend. But what it does for people looking at entering healthcare is there's going to be so many different opportunities, whether your skill set is maybe more IT, um, information technology, maybe it's more on the technology side, or if you want to touch patients and be at their side, the settings are not only going to be hospitals that will be an opportunity for that, but in an outpatient clinic or even in the home where more
1: and more care is being delivered. Thank you, John, for being with us. We really appreciate you being here today. And in our next segment, we're going to talk about something that
3: impacts all of us, behavioral health. We're talking to Sherry Cusimano of Medical City Green Oaks next on the human side of healthcare.
0: Healthcare is changing rapidly. The national debate is escalating and will be a big focus of this year's presidential campaign. We're here to help unpack these important topics, along with over 90 member hospitals across North Texas who are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller.
1: Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. I'm delighted to have with me today Sherry Kusamano. She's the Administrative Director of Community Education and Clinical Development for Medical City Green Oaks, and we're going to talk about a subject that is a very serious subject, and it's one that we want to remove the stigma of talking about. It's something that we need to focus on, and it's something that impacts many of the people that you know, that you work with, even family members. Sherry, welcome. Welcome.
4: Thank you. It's good to be here, Steve. Good to see you.
1: You know, Sherry, I've known you for a number of years, and I know how dedicated you are in, in the work that you do. But let me just ask you a question that maybe our listeners not, may not know. How do you really help someone that you perceive is having some type of behavioral health issue?
4: Well, first of all, don't be afraid to ask about it. Don't be afraid to ask them, how are you doing? You know, you look like something's on your mind. Talk about it with them. Ask them what's going on with them. You know, there is a class that, uh, in fact, Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council actually uh, set a goal for the committee that I'm on, which is part of the Community Health Collaborative. We set as a goal that we were going to teach 10,000 people uh, in mental health first aid over the next three years. And I believe we're about halfway there, which is pretty much on track. And mental health first aid teaches people how to actually uh, talk to somebody or address a mental health concern. It teaches them how to do that in a, in a helpful way and, uh, you know, how to respond and what kind of recommendations to make and how to be helpful. That's an awkward situation for us to know how to address somebody when we're concerned about their mental health condition. And many times people will be afraid to ask questions like, you know, are you depressed? Are you feeling suicidal? That's really taboo to ask about suicide, right? We teach people in that class how to come at that, how to address that, and how to talk to that person and to make helpful suggestions and recommendations.
1: You know, uh really thank you for mentioning that program. In fact, you're right. We are about halfway there. I was talking to Dr. Sushma Sharma who is in our foundation and I think we're right at 5,000 people that we've done the mental health first aid. But you also touched on suicide. Yes. And you were a participant as well as many of uh people from our hospitals in a program called I'm listening which yes. was sponsored by Intercom, which is the parent company that owns KRLD, and that kind of started the relationship we had with them. But, you know, talking to someone about suicide or listening to someone is something that people sometimes feel awkward about and they don't want to do. But let's assume you try to talk to someone, And that person you think is having a behavioral health issue, but they refuse help. What do you do then?
4: Well, it depends on the severity of the situation, right? If the person really, in your estimation, and you've asked them about this, are you feeling suicidal? Are you uh, feeling like you want to hurt yourself or somebody else? And they indicate, yeah, and and your assessment of that situation is this is a dangerous situation. Number one, you can't leave that person alone. You have to stay with them. Again, the class will walk you through how to address that and how to engage help with, you know, offering limited choices, that kind of thing. You know, would you rather I call the uh, suicide crisis line or the mental health crisis line uh, or the police, you know, limited choices like that. But you can't leave them alone if you really think the situation is dangerous. And you do have to engage somebody to get involved. If all else fails, you, you may even have to call 911 to come work with the individual. But we actually teach and role play that kind of situation in that class. And I think that's an important part of that class is teaching people how to walk through that. Now, if, on the other hand, you assess the situation, you've asked about the dangerousness of it, you think, oh, this person's really struggling, but it's not urgent, it's not dangerous, they just are refusing to get help, you've made the suggestion that maybe they talk to somebody, talk to their family doctor, or get some kind of help, and they're saying, no, no, Uh, I'm just not ready to do anything, then I think you have to to let go of it and just know that maybe you planted a seed and they may get help in the future.
1: You know, I was just thinking, there's just so many different situations the way you have to approach it. And let me expand on that and explain. Sometimes, unfortunately, we hear of celebrities uh, that commit suicide and you find out that they've had I guess, challenge dealing with depression over a course of a number of years. And many people do have to deal with that. But sometimes we may not realize that there can be, and I hate to use the word temporary, but there's a situation like postpartum depression or you've had an event in your life that has thrown you into a state of depression. Those are very serious situations too because suicide could result also
4: absolutely you know one of the things that i've seen is uh divorce is one of those kinds of triggers for many people that can throw them into a very serious depression i've had people talk about the fact that divorce was tougher for them to get through than the death of somebody they really loved Uh, I I think it's probably the feeling of abandonment, of the person is still around but not available to them, Uh, and, and they long for that relationship. So, that's the kind of situation that can throw many people into an emotional crisis. Certainly, being fired or laid off from a job can throw people into a crisis so those kinds of situations can be very serious and people can, you know, they think, well, I'm not mentally ill, I'm just going through this time, but the truth is something like that can be just as serious as any illness and and just because it's an environmental stress doesn't mean that you shouldn't get help for it. I mean, let's face it, a gunshot wound is an environmental stress, but you still need to get treatment for it, right? I think it's the same thing with an emotional stressor. You need to take it seriously. You need to get help. You may need medication for a period of time. You may need therapy. It's okay.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, you bring up a a good point because I have a good friend of mine who unfortunately had some cardiovascular problems and had to have some very serious surgery related to his cardiovascular issue. And post-surgery he had severe bouts of depression, yes. and I'm sure you see that type of situation frequently as well.
4: Absolutely. You know, mental health is part of overall health. So if something affects your physical biochemistry, of course, it can also affect your emotional reactions, your um, your emotions, actually that that very same scenario you're talking about happened with my father and our whole family went through uh quite a few things and we benefited by family therapy after that he just didn't seem like himself after the heart attack but it was an emotional response to uh, the heart attack and and the body chemistry changes during times like that and it's not a surprise when you think about that Mental health care is health care. It's all one.
1: It's an integral part of, of the overall treatment.
4: Yes. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and this program, I know, is to help educate and uh, explain to the community how hospitals are trying to give back, how community leaders are involved in the health of the community. But if just anyone listening to this show today needs help, hopefully they will uh, seek that help and get treatment. It doesn't matter where as long as, you know, they get treatment somewhere. Just
4: start talking about it. Talk to the family doctor. We know the treatment works. People do get better. Even the most severe mental illnesses, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, psychotic disorders, early intervention is a form of prevention again, people can go on to lead productive and fulfilling lives with treatment and with the appropriate care. We know that from research now.
3: To find out more about the classes Sherry and Stephen were talking about, you can go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org and follow the Get Trained link at the top. There are classes all over North Texas.
1: In our next segment, we're going to talk about something that affects our hospitals way too often, AND THAT'S TRAUMA AND EMERGENCY TREATMENT BECAUSE OF DRUNK DRIVING. WE'RE GOING TO HEAR FROM RON SILVAN FROM MOTHERS AGAINST DRUNK DRIVING.
3: AND THAT'S NEXT ON THE HUMAN SIDE OF HEALTHCARE.
0: THIS IS THE HUMAN SIDE OF HEALTHCARE ON 1080KRLD AND THE RADIO.COM APP WHERE WE FEATURE HEALTHCARE'S HOTTEST TOPICS AND WHAT OUR NORTH TEXAS AREA HOSPITALS ARE DOING TO MAKE HEALTHCARE HUMAN AGAIN.
1: Welcome back to The Human Side of healthcare. You know, uh, we're going to talk about a topic here in a minute that makes some people uneasy, but it's something that we do need to talk about. And not only do we bring people from our hospitals to participate on this show, we bring friends, uh, community leaders, and people that are impacted, and we're impacted by the work they do. Uh, my next guest is Ron Sylvan. He's the Regional Executive Director for Mothers Against Drunk Driving here in North Texas. And hospitals respect the work that he's doing in his organization. Our emergency rooms, our trauma units, and unfortunately sometimes when people come in are pronounced at our emergency rooms as a result of an accident associated with drunk driving. So Ron, thanks for joining us.
5: I'm happy to be here, Steve.
1: You know, Ron, a lot of people have heard about MAD, and we have a lot of people that may say, what really is the true mission of Mothers Against Drunk Driving?
5: We are here to eliminate drunk driving and prevent drug driving and underage drinking. Um, so it's it's a multifaceted uh, mission, really focusing on a crime or crimes, if you will, that uh, happen to be 100% preventable.
1: As you've looked at MAD over a number of years and the work that's been done, what would you say are some of the greatest accomplishments in your mind that MAD has done?
5: Well, as you know, Steve, uh, in 2020, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. So during the past 40 years, we have accomplished many milestones, But, but some of them at the top of the list would be Uh, raising the drinking age to 21 across the country, establishing the BAC at 0.08. Now, now, BAC, blood alcohol content? That's correct. That's correct. So that's the legal measure that people are either considered to be impaired or not. If they're at 0.08 or above, they're impaired. And since we accomplished all of that, actually last year, Utah, lowered their BAC uh, to 0.05. That, that was a very in, uh, important accomplishment for us too, as well as now looking at 33 states plus Washington, D.C., having all offender interlock laws.
1: You know, uh, those interlock laws make a lot of sense. And can you explain to our listeners a little bit about how that works?
5: Sure. Uh, what happens is when, when an offender... Uh, has been charged with a DWI. The courts have an option, and in many states, as I just mentioned, not much of an option in, in terms of the offender's perspective. Uh, they are ordered to have an interlock device installed in their vehicle. The device is one that uh, requires the offender to blow into the device To determine whether he or she has any alcohol in their blood system. There's also a very sophisticated camera attached to it so that one can't have someone else in their car uh, blow for them. And if uh, it's detected that there's alcohol in their system, the car will not turn on.
1: You know, we hear, unfortunately, routinely here in North Texas about a wrong way driver that's on uh, the toll road or on 635 or on I-30, doesn't really matter. And I'm not prejudging and I'm certainly not saying that every one of the wrong way drivers were driving intoxicated. But many times as the police unfold and investigate what happens, there's usually an impaired driver that's involved. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with wrong way drivers is there any kind of device or anything we can do that could prevent that?
5: Yeah, that's, you know, that's a tough one. That's a, a question that, uh, that I, I am presented with on a regular basis. The solution ultimately is going to have to probably have several different elements. Signage, devices that could be planted onto the highway to prevent vehicles from entering uh, an on-ramp or an off-ramp in the wrong direction technology that is very costly. uh, And I think it's one of the reasons we haven't seen more of this happening certainly anywhere in the country and here in Texas in particular. Uh, So I think we're we're still dealing with that. Hopefully we'll find the answer here soon.
1: Yeah, you know, and the reason I bring that up, as I mentioned, hospitals see the result of drunk driving frequently. And unfortunately, many times death occurs, or there's trauma where we come to trauma units. In fact, I have a good friend of mine that's in emergency management. He has two teenagers. He won't let them drive on weekends after 9 p.m. because of what he sees and because of the drunk driving. So let me just ask you the, the tough question, but our listeners need to, to know this. In North Texas and in Texas, how do we stack up against some of the other states related to drunk driving?
5: Well, you know, that's a great question, and, and my answer is going to be very depressing to, to your listeners. Um, Dallas County is second only to Harris County, which is Houston, in the number of drunk driving crashes that take place annually. But if you look at DFW as basically a four-county area, uh, Denton, Collin, Dallas, and Tarrant County, there is no other location in the entire United States where one is more likely to be hit by a drunk driver.
1: Wow. That is interesting. That four county area you just described is one of the most dangerous in the nation. You bet. Wow. So let me ask you this. You mentioned the 40th anniversary of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And I know you do a lot of good work here locally. What are some of the things for 2020 that you think will make MAD special? And then more specifically, elaborate to the extent you'd like on some of the local events.
5: Sure. Well, we do an array of activities, um, some for the purpose of raising much needed funds so that we can continue to provide services to our victims at no cost and and others just to recognize the hard work of many of our partners like law enforcement in their battle to to also eliminate drunk driving. So annually we do two luncheons. We call them law enforcement recognition luncheons. They're not fundraisers, but they're attended by a couple hundred people. And we recognize uh, law enforcement officers in both Tarrant County and Dallas County for their efforts in eliminating drunk driving, so we will recognize them for the number of DWI arrests, creativity in in establishing educational programs that that uh, that are spread throughout the community and our schools, and and things such as that. So we're very proud of the fact that uh, that we're able to uh, to recognize these folks that you know, our boots on the ground every day, risking their lives to take drunk drivers off the roads. Uh, Our signature fundraising event is called Walk Like Mad. Here in this area, we conduct it once a year at Lake Carolyn here in Las Colinas. Uh, This coming year, our date is June 27th, and we encourage anyone in the area to come out and support our efforts, uh, walk with us, Uh, We have many, many victims and their families that participate in this event. Uh, It's part of the healing process. Uh, It really raises awareness in terms of the issue of drunk driving and, very importantly, raises much-needed funds for our efforts to provide services to those victims.
1: You know, you mentioned victims, and when you look at drunk driving, and unfortunately when you look at people that are involved in a death, Associated with drunk driving, there's not just a single victim, there are multiple victims. And I know Mothers Against Drunk Driving does a lot of work with victims' impact in helping the families that have lost loved ones. Can you elaborate a little bit on victim impact work that you do?
5: Sure. The bulk of our staffing is all geared towards providing victim services. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, we provide those services at absolutely no cost to, uh, to victims. Uh, so we have an array of things that we offer. Uh, we will accompany families to their court proceedings. Many times uh, families are confused, they're intimidated uh, by the court system, and it's very helpful for them to have an advocate at their side. Uh, we help them fill out paperwork for victims' compensation, provide support groups we have a 24-hour nationwide hotline for any victim that uh, that wants to simply talk or needs some of our services. Uh, we go out and we speak to middle school and high school children about the consequences of underage drinking. And when we do that, we always, uh, without exception, run into teachers, or parents who themselves are victims. Statistics show that two out of three of us at some point in our lifetime will be impacted by a drunk driver.
1: Two-thirds? Two-thirds. Wow. Well, Ron, all I can say is on behalf of all the hospitals and, you know, we've named this show the human side of Healthcare," And I think the work that you're doing uh, to prevent drunk driving, the work that you're doing to unfortunately have to help victims that are impacted by drunk driving is is just laudable work and hospitals certainly through our emergency rooms trauma units trying to help educate the community applaud you on those efforts and we stand ready to work with you uh, in any way we can
3: thank
5: you for being on the show Thank you Steve for helping us raise awareness to the issue of drunk driving.
3: Thank you Ron and Steve, what a compelling conversation and such an important topic. Stay tuned, we're going to be right back on the human side of healthcare. Steve and I are going to unpack some of the things that we've talked about today. Final thoughts with the CEO, Stephen Love, coming up right after this break. Traffic and weather together on the 8s on 1080 KRLD and on radio.com.
0: We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller.
1: You know, Thomas, this has really been a great show. We've learned a lot today. John Phillips talking about how he got into healthcare. And, you know, one of the things that I have found is a common denominator among all people in healthcare, Whether they're clinicians, on the business side, it really doesn't matter. They have a servant attitude.
3: I loved meeting John, first of all, and he is the chairman of your board, too, by the way, and you made an excellent selection for this year, so I know you're, you're going to be under great leadership with him as well. The other thing that I don't know if it came through on, transferred through the microphone, But he is so winsome and just attracting. He's the kind of person in this industry that you'd love to work for and with.
1: Yeah, he uh, really brings a lot to the table, especially at our board meetings, uh, his demeanor. Uh, He really draws in the other board members and solicits their input. And we're very fortunate that we have really 15 great CEOs from our hospitals that make up my board, and they help me set priorities. They give me direction. They truly are my bosses, and I couldn't ask for a better group.
3: Well, and again, I know this is radio, but if you could have met him and just felt the compassion and the empathy that he has for this industry and for his team, he mentioned that several times off mic. He loves his people, and it is about a servant's heart. He said that.
1: You know, that is so true. I've been in healthcare forty five years. And that's one other common denominator, especially from the C suite, the executive team. The CEOs care about their workers. They care about their team. They care about delivering the best health care, but also delivering good things in the community.
3: You know, the people that I've known who have gotten into this business, every one of them, the common theme has been to help people. And with everything going on in healthcare now and all of the changes, there is so much demand for great people who want to help other people. And there still is probably no better structure to do it within than this one. Absolutely.
1: No question about it. You know, kind of shifting gears now, another great interview we did was with Sherry today, dealing with behavioral health and mental health. And every time I talk to behavioral health professionals, I learn something new. I learn something about behavioral health that I didn't know before. And I'm so glad that everyone's working to remove the stigma
3: associated with mental health treatment. Well, here's one for you. So, podcasts have become a big deal, right? Absolutely. And we have jumped into that to that uh, quarry. We we have a podcast now, right? The human side of healthcare. We certainly do. So it's on all the major podcast distribution areas wherever you listen to a podcast by the time you're listening to this it it should be close to getting there we're building it out of course the show just started in in this january so we're getting there but uh, look where you like to listen to podcasts and you'll find us and that way you can listen anytime if you happen to not catch it on KRLD. I went to a podcast conference this just this past summer full of millennials room was just full of millennials And that's who is really eating up the podcast technology. The medium of podcasting is really a millennial's medium. You know what the number one topic is that they want to hear of of the, let's say, the nonfiction, right? The nonfiction topic that millennials are most interested in hearing on podcasts. I'll guess. Environment? (laughs) It's mental health. Wow, I didn't know that. They want to know about behavioral health issues, mental health issues, exactly what Sherry was talking about this the, the market now wants to be open and conversational about it
1: you know that is uh, terrific and maybe we can all learn from that because if we talk about it if we're open about it then people will feel at ease when
3: they need to get treatment well you and i grew up in an era where it was a, it was a taboo topic you know it was like something you talked about in private and with a soft voice, you certainly didn't talk to your friends. And my goodness, anybody at the office wouldn't have known about, you know, that you're struggling with something like this. And it was it was stuffed in a sack. You just didn't talk about it.
1: Yeah, and in fairness, and I'm sure some of our listeners uh, that are listening, it's been a cultural thing, too, with many people.
3: Yeah, it has. And now that stigma and that lid is starting to come off. And that's one of the best things in the world because the, I think there's a – my personal read on this is there's a whole new layer of technologies and discussions and methodologies and and even pharmaceuticals that are going to come from this of opening this conversation up and making it so much more mainstream if you
1: listen to any of the behavioral health experts that we've brought on this show you know they're saying please get treatment They're not trying to say, get treatment at their facility. They're not trying to say, you must come to us to get treatment. They're saying, talk to a counselor, talk to your provider, talk to your uh, pediatrician,
3: talk to someone, but at least be open and seek treatment. You know, that's a good point. So if somebody is in a state where they need to get help, we have still so many barriers in our healthcare access, number one, a recorded message when you call that says punch a bunch of buttons that if you're in that state, you don't care about a bunch of buttons. You want to talk to somebody and get help. So that's something I think as we examine our own selves in this industry that we could do a little better too is, is providing that quick access. Absolutely.
1: You know, on this show, we also had a great discussion with Ron Sylvan from Mad you know, we have to be careful. Drunk driving is a very, very serious offense. Some of the folks involved in drunk driving may have underlying substance misuse issues as well, and Mm -hmm. they need treatment, but they are a real threat to people on the highway. And I think Ron really put chills up my spine when he said, Tarrant County, Dallas County, Collin County, Denton County has more reported drunk driving incidents and accidents than anywhere else in this country.
3: You know, when you fathom that, just let that soak in for a second. Think of the geographic area of Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles, San Diego, San Francisco. He said, we have the most of all of those. I and mean, that's phenomenal. So that's something that we need to work on. That's not, that's not Texas pride right there.
1: We definitely need to work on it.
3: And we need
1: to also, as MAD does, be sympathetic to the victims. Because in drunk driving, there's not just a single victim. There are multiple victims. And we see this in our hospitals, unfortunately, when the victims that are physically hurt come into our emergency rooms trauma units, a worst-case scenario when
3: they're pronounced dead. Well, their work has been longstanding, and for 40 years now they're celebrating that anniversary, and they have done so much, and yet he said, and I agree, until the last case is closed and we have no more, there will always be room for for MAD doing their work. Right. And to our listeners out
1: there, please heed the advice and what you've heard not just from Thomas and me, but from the guests we've had on this show. Please do not drink and drive.
3: Now, let's talk about next week. Topic that is close to both of our hearts, and we have a great resource coming to talk about it, vaping and Philip Wong.
1: Absolutely. You know, Dr. Wong's done a great job, uh, even previous to coming to Dallas County to be the head of Health and Human Services. And he gives such a great scientific approach to vaping and the victims. And I hope our listeners will tune in and listen to what he says and
3: what he recommends. We'll also be talking about global diabetes. That's a big issue. We have Kelly Rodriguez from Parkland coming on that and Faith in Action, what One Health System is doing to put feet to their beliefs. That's all coming up next week. That sounds
1: great. And we hope everyone will tune in to the human side of healthcare.